You think they get bands to sign five tour contracts? No fucking way. Didn't Jay-Z do a deal like that? Oh, who fucking knows? But most acts after a year with Live Nation are looking for a way out. Just ask Madonna. Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of music business to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top. You're with Luke Gerges for the Industry Observer. Uh, today we're at uh, Michael Chugg's office in uh, the city of Sydney. Michael, how are you doing? Good, Luke. Yeah. Uh, that's good. So I want to ask um, about your start in the music industry as a teenager. Can you tell me what your first move was? Um, I was very much into music um, and opportunity. I was a cyclist in Launceston, Tasmania. I was cycling with the local amateur cycling club. They ran a, a queen of cycling to raise money for the club because it was an amateur club. And at the time, I was working with the in a furniture shop with the bass player of Launceston's top band. And I said, "Listen, why don't we do a dance?" So we organised a dance, and my mate's band played. And my dad's fire brigade mates were the bouncers, and we raised eighty dollars, eighty pounds. In those days, I was fifteen. The Beatles had just come around, everybody was totally taken and everybody wanted to be in music. So we did that and um, it was a it was a great thing to happen. Last 80 quid I saw for a while, but then I started managing local acts and running dances around Tasmania with those bands and eventually I moved to Melbourne. And it was at that point you co-founded Frontier? Oh, no, that, that came much later. This We're talking 69 here. Um, I first One of the first people I met at an agency at Am, called Ambo in uh, Lonsdale Street in Melbourne was a young red-headed guy with a big nose called Michael Gadinsky. <laughs> and we became friends and I started helping him out at his dances. And there was a lot going on in Melbourne then. There was a company called Letter B that managed Daddy Cool and Spectrum and Captain Matchbox Whoop Band. Consolidated Rock used to run regular concerts at the Melbourne Town Hall with all those bands and they'd bring bands like Tully and Tamam Shad and the Lardy Dars and Freshwater and Jefferson John and Copper Wine and all these bands down from Sydney and uh, it was decided that we'd run a consolidated rock show at Sydney Town Hall uh, with Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and a whole lineup of other acts so at the same time, they decided to open an office called Consolidated Rock in Sydney, and I was sent up to run that. So I moved up here in about 71. Um, uh, the concert at Sydney Town Hall had a lot of ramifications in that um, it was the first time a rock show had ever been in Sydney Town Hall, and the security and the people running the Town Hall just didn't want to know and made it as difficult as possible. And we had problems all day with sound systems and all sorts of problems. And Billy Thorpe got on late and only played a couple of songs and um, the security turned the lights off and the crowd rioted. And Molly Meldrum wrote a front-page article in Go Set the following week called Rock Con at Sydney Town Hall which he denies to this day, but he wrote it. Anyway, Michael Browning got the shits and started a, a, a newspaper called The Daily Planet against Go Set. And, of course, Go Set was 
Gosep was the Bible at its peak. It used to sell probably 100,000 copies a week nationwide. And it was, you know, it was exciting times. There were so many big acts and uh, through Gidinski and Australian music was starting to get on air and Chain were having hits and Billy Thorpe had a hit with most people I know. And Daddy Cool had probably one of the biggest songs ever called Eagle Rock and Spectrum had I'll Be Gone and it was a big time for Australian music. So anyway, cut a long story short, the Daily Planet went broke um, and they went bankrupt and Gadinsky joined uh, who up until that stage has been our opposition, a guy called Ray Evans at the Australian Entertainment Exchange in Melbourne. I was in Sydney, dead broke, married, and uh, a young roadie of a band called Company Kane and I started an agency called Sunrise uh, out of the ashes and all that stuff. His name was Roger Davies. And he went on to manage Tina Turner and Olivia Newton-John, Joe Cocker, Tony Joe White and, of course, uh, Pink, who's super. So Roger and I started that agency um, and we also bought Let It Be in Melbourne, which I'd mentioned earlier, and so we had a national agency, Sunrise Let It Be. Um, then Roger decided he wanted to move to America with his band Sherbet, which he did. And his, the rest is history for him. And anyway, in 75, Gudinski rang me and asked me if I wanted to be involved in Premier Artists, the agency in Melbourne. So I got involved in that as a director. Um, since about 73, I'd been doing freelance tours with Paul Dainty. As tour director, my first tour was Status Quo. I did a lot of other tours, Rory Gallagher, Robin Trower, Fairport Convention. And uh, in 76, I was the tour director of ABBA, which, you know, is still the most talked about tour and probably mm. the most talked about band in this country to today. We did David Bowie, we did Linda Ronstadt, we did Fleetwood Mac, Rock Arena, and it was a very, very big time. At this time I was managing uh, Richard Clapton and Kevin Boric and Were all the tours extremely fruitful or did oh, yeah. you have a few did no, you have a few misses? They were all pretty big tours. They were all big tours. And who was primarily taking the risk on for all of those? Paul Dandy. Yeah. So um I was managing some acts, Richard Clapton, Kevin Boric. We lived in America for about a year in 77 and Dainty would fly me home to do the Bowie tours and all the big tours and I'd make a lot of money and I'd go back to America and spend it on keeping the bands there. Anyway, in early 1979 I was in London with Kevin Boric and we were recording an album and... uh, the whole new wave punk thing was exploding and we saw the police at the Lyceum, we saw Reckless Eric, we saw the specials and all these bands. And when I came back to Australia, I said to Dainty, uh, we should start touring these bands. And him being a West End London boy, didn't want to know about the East End <laughs> scum. <laughs> so um, I was at a premier artist meeting about four days later and uh, I said to Gadinsky, this is 79, um, I think we should start our own touring company and he opened up his briefcase. He just got back from London and he had all the publishing contracts for nearly all those new wave bands. Wow. Please, Elvis Costello, the squeeze. He had it all. And so we started Frontier. Uh, he, we had a 
good friend called Ian Copeland who was the agent for the police, the brother of the manager and the drummer, and he allowed us to use Frontier. His company was called Frontier Booking International. He allowed us to call our company Frontier Touring Company and uh, away we went. The first two tours were the police and squeeze. Can you tell me, like take me into that room and that negotiation um, when you're talking to Daginsky about how that company was going to be structured? And, and Well, there were, there were uh, I don't know, five or six directors of premier artists. So we just basically um, split it up between ourselves. Daginsky and I had them more of the shares than anybody else because we were the ones that were going to run it. He was obviously going to do all the international booking of acts and I was going to put the tours on the road. And did you split the risk equally? Uh, well, it was a company. We all owned shares in the company, so we all whatever our shareholding was, that was what we risked. Yeah. And um, what was the moment after running that successful enterprise where you decided, hey, I want to go off and do my own thing? Well, you know, we we started off with English New Wave acts and we graduated into, you know, Neil Young's first ever tour, Bob Dylan with Tom Petty and the whole the whole thing grew, you know, in the 90s we did Madonna and it was just growing all the time and in 99 um, I was getting dissatisfied with the way it was going. I was starting to do most of the international work. And uh, there were some disruptive directors in the company and I wanted to look at the internet. I wanted to continue touring Young Axe. I'd lost the company uh, about 50 grand touring Radiohead on creep in clubs. (laughs) So the financial director didn't want to do any more Young Axe. So I decided that I wanted to keep doing Young Axe because it's – the basis, certainly the basis of the business. And um, so, and I wanted to learn about the internet because I thought there was much, much more than just sending emails. And uh, so I, in 2000, I started Chug Entertainment. I want to unpack that, you know, the young acts were the basis of the business. So um, you look at record companies and depending on which one you talk to, some of them have one in 13 KPIs, like they're one success for 13 misses um, and that, that sort of one success pays. That's right. <laughs> no wonder they nearly went broke. <laughs> yeah, so, so a, lot of the, a lot of the failure, the one success pays for a lot of those failures. So yeah. when, you're, when, you, when you talk about those young acts and radio had lost you $50,000, um, do you see those younger acts in that sort of way or do you actually see them as that was the one miss usually they do make good well, money. Well, no, they don't usually make good money. That's not true. Mm. A lot of the young acts that still come into this country, they lose money and the promoter loses money. But it's all about the second, third, fourth tours. Right. So when you then do a deal with them, do you get them to commit to four tours as opposed to? Well, you know, in this day and age, it's not that easy when you've got corporate um, people like Live Nation who will pay a band anything, uh, no matter how much it's going to lose them. Um, so it's not that easy, but we we have built, you know, obviously Radiohead are one of our biggest clients now and they tour every few years and it's always very successful. Uh, you know, it's that's the way it is. I mean, it was very much like that when we first started Frontier. I mean, the police played theatres and we ended up playing stadiums on two tours. So it's all about building artists and, you know, Coldplay, 
we did in small clubs, then we went to the Horden Pavilion, then we went to arenas and then we went to stadiums. Um, you know, Dixie Chicks are another example. I heard a demo of theirs at a country music uh, convention in Chicago in the 90s and they were managed by a, a friend of mine and uh, um, we brought them in, we did theatres and then they blew up and crossed over to mainstream radio and, you know, they were pulling 80,000, 100,000 people to tour. We toured them this year on no record for 11 years and we did 100,000 tickets. So it's all about relationships. It's all about building the acts um, and, you know, um, it's all about having, you know, the internet changed a lot of stuff. The internet made it, it much more easier to find young acts and not be relying on record companies to tell you who they thought would be the next big thing. I mean, once upon a time when you toured artists, you'd you'd check the charts, you'd check their sales, you'd talk to the record company, you'd book the acts, you'd, the record company would throw a heap of money into the tour as far as marketing goes for the record and the tour and away you'd go. I mean, these days, I mean... Uh, some of the acts that we've broken over the last few years, like Monsters and Men and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, uh, Jason Mraz. I mean, we were all, some of the people in my office were under those bands before, you know, anybody had ever heard of them. I remember uh, back in the very, very early 2000s going to Bonnaroo and uh, I saw three acts we'd never heard of, and they were Ben Queller, Unwritten Law, and Jason Mraz. So it developed. It develops from young acts. I mean, obviously, we've, we've got Elton John, who's touring in regional areas this September. We, Robbie Williams is a client. We've got a lot of clients who stayed loyal to us, and um, that's really what it's all about these days. And... You did, you did mention Live Nation, so they obviously have a very aggressive market share play. Um, do you feel like um, as they've gained momentum, um, has, that, has that caused a bit of a disruption where you've had to pivot or has it actually strengthened you with a, I guess, in, in more of a niche as a boutique touring agency? Oh, I think we've always been a bit boutique, but, uh, you know, they throw a lot of money at Axe and... Uh, you know, sometimes we just say, I'll let them have it because nine times out of ten they'll lose money. And, you know, there's there's a few raiders in our business at the moment that, you know, Michael Gadinsky and I are still very good friends and we talk about them all the time. And, you know, a lot of these, you, you've only got to look at all these tours and these promoters cutting ticket prices because they paid too much for the acts and they're not selling the tickets because they didn't really do enough research in the first place. And, um, you know, that is doing a lot of damage to our business. Live Nation paying too much for acts is damaging the business worldwide. And then, you know, cutting ticket prices to try and get out of your problem is damaging our business to a point where, like, we have a joint venture with Destroy All Lines. We do acts like I Prevail and um, All Time Low and the Deftones and even smaller young rock and metal acts. And we found the last six, eight months that the kids are waiting to the last two or three weeks because they think we're going to cut ticket prices, but we don't. So we, we get a rush and sometimes on some of these smaller tours that are playing three or 400 seaters, we're selling 200 
Uh, we're selling half a house in the last week or so because the kids are realising that we are not going to cut tickets. Gadinsky's the same. And so, you know, you've got to have some standards here. I mean, so we, we do. And, uh, you know, one thing about Frontier and the same thing about Chug Entertainment is, you know, you book a tour, you put it on sale. If it doesn't sell out, you don't drop your bundle. You work hard and you bring it home. And um, that's won us a lot of supporters and a lot of loyal clients over the years. You know, we don't walk around bitching about how much money we lose and we get on with it. And that's, I think, why we still survive. So have you changed your marketing rollout with that in mind now that all these punters are sort of waiting for the last minute? Do you then do you then hold off a lot of your marketing investment to the end or how do you how has that changed in terms of the way you plan? No, we don't really hold it out. I mean we you work out whether the act's gonna be an instant sell out or whether it's gonna be a slow build sell out. But you know, the kids know immediately the first day you announce it. You know, when you've got databases of 200, 300,000 people, you're getting to all these people pretty much straight away. The kids know it's rolling out. Um, and they, you don't need to spend a lot of money to get those kids to buy in the last two or three weeks because once the penny drops, they're not going to buy them on last tickets for a third of the price. Will they go and buy them? Um, our marketing, I mean, it's we do a lot of digital stuff. We do a lot of, um, what's the word, a lot of interaction with all our fans, uh, with our lists, our members lists and all that. Um, and we also do mainstream marketing, radio, TV, press, street posters. I mean, you know, when the internet really started to blow up, <laughs> A lot of people went, oh, you don't need to do all this old-style marketing anymore, but you do. You need to do it all. You need to be in their face all the time. And um, the internet's been a big part of that. So when you do that, I guess, more traditional marketing, um, is it more a brand awareness exercise or are you able to isolate the ROI and know, hey, these posters will actually get us this many tickets? Yeah, no, you can work that out. I mean, we, you know, with a mainstream act like Robbie Williams, if you work out where you're going to place your TV ad, you can see the next day how many tickets you sold, things like that. You can see with a digital post or a mail out to your database, you can see the results. I want to ask you about, again, the transition from when you started your own shop. Um, how much uh, existing systems and uh, strategy did you bring across and how much did you go, no, nah, that's the old way, this is the new way and this oh, is how I'm going to do you it? Still, every, you keep learning in this business. I mean, I still learn today. I mean, there's there's so many, you know, things happening so quickly that things change. I mean, I've always had... Uh, my, a lot of my staff have already, always been females. I find working with women really exciting. And I have some amazing ears in the, in this office who hear about bands and like bands before I've even heard of them. So you, you have to take all that into consideration. Um, building lineups is important. Um, not focusing on one genre of music. I mean, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, a lot of the genres that are successful today, you couldn't 
make money out of then the audience has grown i mean probably i suppose around the turn of the century uh the audience grew quite substantially and uh that thing in the 80s 70s 80s 90s where you wouldn't listen to your sister's music and you certainly wouldn't fucking listen to your dad's music that all went away so from 2000 or so onwards you all of a sudden you've got a music community um and i think I started to see it in the late 90s and I'll never forget uh, the great late Billy Thorpe who was who was one of the reasons I got into the business back in the late 60s. I saw him play and that was it. He came home from America and he'd been living in America. He'd had a platinum record in America. He'd done quite well. He came home from America and we ran a show one night at the Old Palace in Melbourne and the audience was half dads and half their sons. And uh, that started to make me think about what was going on. And then it, you see it more and more and more. And today, you know, you do a, a Robbie Williams or a Coldplay and the kids and the parents will be there. I mean, Robbie Williams at his peak, when big stadium tour, we did 500,000 people. There was mum and dad, there was the grandparents, there were the kids. Grandkids. I mean, ACDC was probably a greater example of that. You know, it was a huge tour and everybody had black T-shirts on and the, the, the family ages went from about seven to 80. So it's, it's changed a lot in that way and, you know, you bring in Santana and the Doobie Brothers, which we did earlier in the year, and the amount of young people in the audience is just quite staggering. And when you go to see a young act like Ed Sheeran or some of those, the amount of older people, because <laughs> it's all about good music. So it's, it's changed in that. And I think the internet had a lot to do with that. Um, certainly our narrow-minded radio stations didn't. Um, and it's been interesting to, to watch that. Um, and it's certainly been a boon for our business. I mean, given we've got 22 or 23 million people in this country, we far outperform uh, nearly everywhere else in the world. And I guess that's the staple of business, right? You either complain and die or you adapt and thrive. And I think that's a huge credit to your ability to do that over so many years. Yeah, we have to, you know. It's like you have to listen to the people around you. You have to look at the trends. I mean, you know, we, we've done very, very well with country music in the last, you know, certainly in, since I started Chug Entertainment, but... We, I was dabbling with it with the Dix Chicks in the late 90s, but a friend of mine, Rob Potts, who's been on the Country Music Association Board of America for 20-odd years, 25 years, and was a little promoter here in Australia, came to me and said, let's start doing some country music. So we did, and, uh, you know, now we have um, – it's 10 years old. It's the biggest country music festival in the Southern Hemisphere called CMC Rocks the last two years has sold out, you know, and, and for many, many years people have been trying to get Alan Jackson and Brooks and Dunn and all these old star country acts to come to Australia. Well, we've we, we managed to do that. But not only in doing that, we've also had the the Kelsey Ballerinis, the uh, Lady Annabellums, the Little Big Towns, Florida Georgia Lines. Uh, a great example is Zach Brown Band, Zach didn't want to play country music shows. He so we put him on Blues Fest. 
This year he did his third Blues Fest. We sold out arenas in Sydney and Melbourne and we now have an established big act. So, and, and, and you know, people say, ah, oh, it's country music, but it's it's actually not country music. It's quite solid country rock and pop rock. So it's a crossover thing and we do very well with that. And how much autonomy do you give your staff and partners when they really want to have a crack at something that you might not be initially familiar with? Like do you do you tend to need to be fully across it before you green light it or? Oh, no, no. Um, as long as it makes sense and everybody who works for us knows what makes sense. I mean, you've got an unknown band, you're not going to try and do arenas. So you look at things, you discuss it, you know. And um, one thing I really learned when I started Chug Entertainment was the best word in the dic- in the dictionary is no. <laughs> so we we practice no a lot. No, we just is that careful. because you started by saying yes too much? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you can do that real easy. Listen, you, one thing I learned way back three decades ago, just because you fucking think they're the greatest band in the world doesn't mean that anybody else has the same opinion. So you got to be very careful. Tell me about the deal you did recently with uh, Lunatic Entertainment. Um, how did that come about and what was it that, you, that drew you to that company? Well, they weren't really a company at that stage. I was at a health farm in... Uh, on the Queensland border, um, just detoxing and having a week out, I discovered these health farm places in the early 80s when a maniac radio friend of mine, a guy who started FM in this country actually, went up to one of these farms and came back a different person. So I started going to these places and they taught me moderation and how to be at peace with yourself and actually how to communicate with people. I suddenly realised thrown into one of these situations that my whole life was music and I really didn't have much to say to normal, honest, God-fearing people. So I learned all that again. Um, And um, I was at one of the health farms in the early 2000s and this young guy from Melbourne came over and said, are you Michael Chug? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, my name's Jerome. He said, I run some bars in Melbourne in the laneway. It's called Jerome's Laneway Bar and all this stuff. And uh, he said, my mate and I, a young guy from Melbourne, Danny Rogers, we've started this festival called Laneway and the Laneway's in Melbourne. So I went down and had a look at it and I sat Danny and Jerome down and said, I think we could do this in Sydney. So we started it in Sydney and we originally started it down in the laneways around where the basement is and the rocks. Uh, My partner, Matthew Lazarus Hall, who'd come on board uh, in the early 2000s because we felt we needed someone who knew the business more than I did and, and could control the business. So he came on and we got involved and we started Sydney then we, Danny and I flocked to Brisbane. We had a look at some laneways in the valley and we started Brisbane. And uh, we were doing a fair bit in Perth at the time, so we went over to Perth, had a look there, we started Perth. Then Adelaide came on board. Then I said we should look at New Zealand, which we did because we do a lot in New Zealand. I've been promoting there since 1972. Uh, I'd been doing a lot up in Asia and Danny and I went up to Singapore and had a look. Everybody in Singapore said, oh, you're crazy, there's no there's no 
new wave-minded kids in this city. They're not in indie rock and, of course, you know, we pull 13,000 people every year pretty much. So it really was they had the idea. They'd started in Melbourne and Chug Entertainment uh, had the ability to help take it out of Melbourne. And we've broken a lot of acts, Florence the Machine, I mean, you know, started Laneway Presents, which is toured Flume and Tame Impala and Florence. And so there's a lot come out of it. Danny's become one of the best festival bookers in the world. Jerome is across all the beverage and food side of things. Matthew is really good at putting things on the ground together and making them work world class and that's what we have. We have a genuine boutique world-class festival. And has that inspired an appetite to potentially build some more franchises as well? Uh, you know, Danny, we've had a lot of people want to take it into different parts of Asia and everything but we all sort of feel the same way that, you know, it's something to be – we think it can be built on in a lot of different ways but it's not – you know, you can go and start festivals any day of the week. Is they're not that easy to um, to start, and they're not that easy to maintain. So we're pretty happy with what we've got going. 2012, we started Chug Music. Um, yep. Was the appetite to get back into the management and record label business? I mean, was it a throwback to how you started or was it always something you wanted to do? Or So, no, I wasn't really interested in getting back into management about – I don't know, 2012, Brooke Atan, who was uh, the keyboardist from Papua New Guinea and Yothi Indy, rang me out of the blue and said, you've got to hear these three kids uh, from Papua New Guinea. They now live in, live in Brisbane. He said, I taught them at school how to sing and play. And I went, oh, I'm not really into it, Brooke. I really don't want to know. At the same time... Brian Brown, who's a really close friend of mine and whose opinion of I respect of a lot of things, rang me up and said, you've got to see these two boys from Northern Beaches, the Limeback Lime Brothers. Their band's called Lime Cordial. So it was like, oh, okay. So Baruka kept ringing me, ringing me for about six or seven months. And in the end... Um, I went, oh, okay, fuck it, because he said their dad would fly them down. So dad flew the two girls and the boy and the guitar player, songwriter friend Jay Bovino. They flew down and they played a uh, little acoustic showcase in the back room and I figured, you know, with Susan Heyman, my, who runs the touring company and is the one who's found so many of these acts that we've broken and all these other girls here have got very – you know, distinct opinions of what they think of music. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, these kids will either it'll be great or it'll be that will be the end of that. And they were very nervous. They'd never really played live. They thought they were coming to play in front of me and they playing in front of 20, 25 very cynical young music industry people. And they blew them away. The, the vocals, harmonies, the songs were fantastic. So... I went, oh, okay, let's do it. And they had that EP, which had let me down easy on it. The father had released it, nothing was happening. Um, Talking about Shepherd, of course. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I rang up Sebastian Chase, my mate at 
MGM and distribution. And we put it in the marketplace. Um, at the same time, I went down to the Lear's Den at the Metro one Saturday night and used Lime Cordial on stage with fucking big brass section and reggaeing and bouncing away and 300 17, 16, 17 year old women going absolutely crazy. And I went, well, fuck me, they got a future. <laughs> so all of a sudden we had two bands. Then a, a friend of mine, Ian James, who runs Mushroom Publishing. Sorry, did you sign them both to um, management and label or just management at that point? Well, um, we signed them to management. We said that we would put the records out. Um, Lime Cordial signed management and recording. Shepherd. We had that EP um, and we did a deal at work. So basically Chug Music was the overseer label, MGM's distri- distribution and Empire Song, which is the Shepherd's own company, was making the records. So then uh, Ian James uh, rang me, he runs Mushroom Publishing, he rang me and he said, uh, look, there's this young guy in Brisbane wants to come down and work in Sydney. His name's Andrew Stone. He said, I think he's one of the best young guys in the industry. So um, Andrew came down and we had some meetings. He met with Susan. He met with my financial and legal people and everybody really liked the guy. So he bought the Griswolds and Hey Geronimo and all of a sudden we had four acts and him and I and um, away it went. And obviously you've built um – two big businesses which traditionally don't have, um, I guess, much inherent equity in them. So management, key man clauses, uh, promoting is sort of tour by tour short of signing bands, you know, for five tours or whatever, kind of like what Live Nation does. Are you conscious yeah, they of- don't do that. You think they get bands to sign five tour contracts? No fucking way. Didn't Jay-Z do a deal like that? Oh, who fucking knows. But most acts after a year with Live Nation are looking for a way out. Just ask Madonna. Anyway. <laughs> So, we won't go there. Yeah. So yeah. So I guess is that something when you're building your business, you're at all conscious of that? Um, I guess we're largely a service-based business, not an asset business, or is that something you just really don't care about? Oh no, we care about that. Mm. Care about that very much. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, those bands are the assets. Mm. You know, when you've got like Shepherd now, who um, you know made a lot of money and. Uh, you know, I've had 600 million streams worldwide and sold 7 million records and, you know, are breaking worldwide and, yeah. And Laneway obviously has now become a brand in of well, itself. That's an asset. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And CMC. So it's all about building brands. I mean, it's become very much, you know, no one knew the word brand 15 years ago. No one even thought of the word assets 15 years ago. Um, it's it's a changing world. Everything changes and you've got to stay on top of it. I want to ask uh, to take out some lessons from your um, very impressive history. What is the biggest mistake you have made as a promoter? Oh, that's a hard one, I suppose. Listening to other people doesn't help. Um, yeah. I mean, biggest mistakes were, I mean, the, when we first started Chug Entertainment, I'd booked the two hottest bands in the world at the time, the Chili Peppers and Santana, and the Australian dollar went down to 50 cents. 
shit. So I lost money on two, two of the biggest acts in the world. I wouldn't call that a, that a mistake, but, you know. So are you a currency watcher these days? Like, uh, cur- we, all, we, like all, we all are. Yeah. I mean, you, you did speak about times when you were when you didn't have a, you know two pennies to, to rub together, yeah. um, and you were building you know your business and your reputation. Um, at what point in your career did you feel like, oh, fuck, I've got, I've got this. Like this is this is going to work, and this is happening. Oh, I think yeah, that belief all the way. I mean, it was when we first started. It was all about the music. Money was my attitude to money, and. Uh, Hasn't changed that much. Uh, you do something really well, the money comes. And that's sort of the basis of everything. I mean, obviously, when you've got a business now that we have and, you know, you've got an overhead of a quarter of a million dollars a month, well, you've got to think ahead and you've got to plan and you've got to know what you're doing. Um, but, you know, we're pretty happy with the direction we're taking. We're about to move offices in just down the hill into brand-new offices. We've... In, you know, Susan and I just did a five-week run around the world and I'm very impressed with the way Susan Heyman is performing. She's seen as one of the best young promoters in the world by people all around the world. So, you know, for me uh, to be able to, you know, work with girls like her and Andrew Stone that runs um, Chuck Music and also, you know, to be in partnership with people like Danny Rogers and Jerome, it's pretty special. Thank you very much for your time, Michael. No I, uh, I have. I just want you to leave us with what you believe are people who would love to really contribute to the touring record and management industry. What is the one thing that they need to bring in, and what is the one thing that they should have? What attitude should they avoid, or what act, what actions should they avoid? Well, you know, over the years, I've seen a lot of people come in to the industry with a lot of money and go, I'm going to rule the world. I'm going to be the best and hottest manager or promoter in the business. I've got money and I'll do any, everything I want to do. And, of course, you can bet nine times, well, ten times out of ten, within a year they're broke. Um, what you need to bring in to the business is um, you need to believe in what you're doing for a start. Um, and you need to bring in the intent to, to achieve. And it's like anything. I mean, one of my mottos, and still is, if you believe in something, keep banging your head against the wall and the wall will fall down. And that's what it's all about. And, uh, you know, if you're going to come into the business, come into the business because you really, the business excites you. Don't come into the business thinking you're going to make millions and millions of dollars. But come into the business thinking that, you know, this is something I really love doing. I mean, people say to me, do you have holidays? And to be honest, every day is a holiday because I'm not working in some factory or selling shoes or out of a job because I'm too old. It's a great business to be in. I've travelled the world. I get to hang out with some of the best people in the world. And, you know, when I decided to get back into management and I took Shepherd around the world the first time, totally unknown, it was all the friends that I'd made over the years that made it possible in South Africa and London and New York and Los Angeles and, and you know, to to realise that you have that respect and you've built that up around the world, it's pretty special stuff. And um, the other thing is that I I certainly 
give back. I want to teach uh, young people. I want them to gain from our knowledge. I mean, when I was in England um, just recently, Shepherd were uh, doing the little mix stadium tour of England and playing 22, 25,000 people a night in castles and Twickenham Stoop rugby ground and places, the Southampton cricket ground. I couldn't believe there was a grandstand there, the Shane Warns. I couldn't fucking believe it. <laughs> anyway, um, all these young promoters who were promoting our shows would all come up. All of them would come up and say, oh, I heard you speak at the International Live Music Conference six years ago, four years ago, and you were truly inspirational and it's such a pleasure to meet you and have you here because what you said that day has had a lot to do with where I'm at. Wow. Yeah. I, I would definitely uh, echo those sentiments. And, and, Michael, thank you very much for your time. I'm very grateful. It's a pleasure.